Turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we turn to Colossians chapter 1, we're embarking upon a new sermon series through the book of Colossians, this cherished letter of the Apostle Paul. Read the first eight verses together. The Apostle Paul, you may know, wrote this letter from a situation of imprisonment. He alludes to this in chapter 4, verse 3, when he speaks of the mystery of Christ on account of which he has been placed in prison. And the first audience whom the Apostle Paul has in view is, of course, a, a mixed audience. The city of Colossae not only had a substantial Gentile population, but also a substantial Jewish population. And so the Apostle's concern in this letter is to defend against false teachings that that are coming from both ends of the spectrum, both from the, the Jews as well as from certain Gentiles who together threaten uh, the Colossians' faith in Christ. But we read chapter 1, the first eight verses this morning, where Paul begins with a word of thanksgiving. This is God's holy and infallible word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's holy and inspired word. May God bless it to our hearts as we meditate upon it this morning. <clears throat> when dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever you begin a new study on any book of the Bible, it's always important to begin by asking a few questions. And among the most important questions you should ask is, why was this particular book written? Why, why did the, the author put pen to paper? What was his goal in writing? What was his burden? What was, that, what was it that the Holy Spirit pressed upon the author's heart and mind so that he, being carried along by the Spirit, was compelled to write? When you seek to answer that question, you'll often begin to see recurring themes and recurring ideas that tie a book or, or a letter together. And this, so this is especially important and especially True when you read through the New Testament epistles because the New Testament epistles, very similar to that of the Old Testament prophetic books, were not written in, in abstraction from what was going on in the life of the churches. But they were written with real people and real situations in mind. There were, there were real problems and real threats that needed to be addressed and warned against. And, and so it's not hard to imagine the Apostle Paul, is it, as he as he sits in prison, he hears about 
all the things that are, that are going on in the churches, the good things as well as the bad things, the, the encouraging things and the discouraging things. And although he cannot go to them personally and physically, what he can do is, is write to them. What he can do is write to them with apostolic authority and with, with great pastoral sensitivity in order that they might continue to persevere in the faith. And that's precisely what he's done here in his letter to the Colossians. Paul has heard some of the good things as well as some of the bad things, and so he has taken pen to paper. And while it can't, we can't be entirely certain about the exact circumstances and false teachings that Paul has in view, what we can say is that whatever they were, they were, they were threatening to undermine the supremacy and all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were they were threatening to undermine the gospel reality that, that Christ is, is all we need by suggesting some sort of, of religious syncretism, some sort of, of blending together between the, the true gospel of Christ and, and Jewish and or pagan distortions so that some in the church are being led to believe that, that Christ himself was not enough. That's what we gather from the letter as a whole, the apostle's primary concern is that the saints in Colossae recognize that their fullness is entirely in Christ and that they did not look to anything or, or to anybody else. And so although the threats and dangers that we face today may take different shapes and different faces, Paul's underlying concern for the Colossians applies every bit as much to us today because how often aren't we also, like the Colossians, tempted to, to wonder, is, is Christ really enough? Is Christ really all-sufficient? Or do we need something more? We too are sometimes tend to think that, that we need Christ plus something else, aren't we? And the devil would have us to believe that, that we can have it both ways, that that we can have some of our fullness in Christ and find some of our fullness in, in something or someone else. And Satan loves nothing more than, than when the church gives into that old temptation, that old evil of, of religious syncretism, whereby the church begins to, to blend together the, the things of God and the things of the world. And so Paul's letter to the Colossians provides us with a word of warning. Paul's concern, you could say, is similar to that of the concern of, of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. You may recall, what did Elijah say to, to Israel on Mount Carmel? He said, how long will you, will you go on limping between two opinions? How long will you go on thinking that, that you can have it both ways, that you can, that you can have the Lord over here and, and Baal over here? How long will you think that God will allow the, this blending together of of Yahweh worship and Baal worship. Paul's desire, Paul's burden, is that his readers should, should be matured in Christ, that they should find their fullness and, and their completion in Christ. And this is the thread that we want to trace together throughout this letter in the coming weeks and months, complete in Christ. In chapter 128, for example, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he writes, For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, or you have found your completion in Him, and are fully assured by Him. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras also greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature or, or complete and fully assured in all the will of God. This, says one pastor, is the ultimate object of Paul's preaching. His desire is that every believer might grow to full maturity in Christ so as to appear before God on the day of judgment without confusion. In Christ we have all our fullness. In Christ, we have all we could ever need and more. As Paul says later on in this chapter, in Him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, making peace by the blood of His cross. With all this in mind, we note that Paul begins his letter with words of thanksgiving. Paul, we know, is never actually Uh, visited the Colossians, we see in verse 4 that he has heard a great deal about them, and he's heard encouraging things. Paul has heard about their faith in Christ, and he's heard about about their love for all the saints on account of of the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. Paul has heard about how their faith in Christ has been bearing much fruit in their lives, and for that, the Apostle Paul never ceases to give thanks to God in his prayers. Paul is thankful to God for for the fruit of their faith as that fruit bears witness to the reality that God is is really at work in their lives. And as is customary in all his letters, Paul first begins with an apostolic greeting. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and he does so to remind himself and his readers that, that what he says, he says on Christ's behalf. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul recognizes that in his office as an apostle, he is an ambassador of Christ, God making his appeal through the apostle. And so Paul not only writes with great pastoral sensitivity, but also with, with apostolic authority. He writes as one who has been commissioned by Christ himself to be Christ's witness to the truth on earth. He writes as one through whom Christ is is laying that foundation upon which the coming generations will will be part of this structure that is the church of Jesus Christ. Paul writes by way of divine inspiration, as the Apostle Peter would say, Paul speaks from God as one being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul says to us in this letter cannot simply be shrugged off to the side. No one can, can read the letter of the Coloss- to the Colossians and simply, you know, take it or leave it. For these words are not just Paul's words, but these are the very words of Christ himself. And what an amazing thing that is. What an amazing thing it is to recognize this reality. This is the, the word of Christ when when you consider the manner in which Paul addresses his readers. Because how does Paul describe these Colossians? What does he say to them? How does he speak to them? He says, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We all recognize that no church is perfect. Every church is full of sinners on this side of heaven. And yet, wonder of all wonders, sinners like us and sinners like the Colossians so long ago have become a whole new thing. Saints and faithful brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we become recipients of God's grace and peace. And this is how Paul begins his letter, by, by declaring that grace, by declaring that peace and telling us, telling his readers who they are, telling them who they really are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The noun saints, writes one pastor, recalls the electing grace which singled out Israel to be God's special possession. And its application to Christians today identifies them as the people of the new covenant. And as such, the word saints speaks simultaneously both to, to who we are as well as to what we are called to be. Sainthood, this pastor writes, is at once a gift and a vocation. What is first a status conferred becomes a calling to be followed. Notice that Paul doesn't just use the language of saints, but he also uses the family language of, of brothers and sisters so that our our proper designation this morning is not first and foremost Canadians or, or Ontarians, but brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point of all this is simply to say that before Paul says anything by way of encouragement or exhortation, he begins by reminding his readers who they are. They're saints. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're sons and daughters of, of the Most High God. Yes, they, they live in the city of Colossae. That's where they work. That's where they go about their lives. Colossae, is their, that's their physical location. But Paul says that their spiritual location is in Christ Himself. Christ Himself is is the true domain in which they live and move and, and have their being. In Christ is their true reality. In Christ is their, is their true citizenship. And in virtue of their union with Christ, Paul says elsewhere that, that believers are already now seated with Christ in heavenly places. And apparently the saints in Colossae are are living in light of that reality. And this is what the Apostle Paul finds so encouraging to hear, that, that knowing whose they are and knowing who they are is having a profound impact on the way they are. Having come to know that they belong to Christ, having come to know who they are in Christ, these Colossians have begun to live in a whole new way. And this we see is, is the reason for Paul's constant gratitude. This is what, what moves him to, to write these opening words. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Colossians' faith, we discover, was a sincere faith. It was 
It was a fruit-bearing faith. It was a faith that was being proved genuine through the love that they had for one another. And so Paul writes these words in order to encourage them, to reassure them that even in the face of the numerous spiritual threats and dangers, God is is clearly at, at work within them. God is clearly working in their lives. This is also why you should also note that Paul's gratitude for them is not then directed to them. But Paul's gratitude for the Colossians is is directed to God alone. Paul doesn't give the Colossians credit for any any of this, but Paul rightly recognizes that, that God himself is the one who stands behind their faith in Christ, and God is the one who, who stands behind their, their love for each other and behind the, the hope laid up for them in heaven. And that's precisely the way it is for us as well, isn't it? Behind our faith in Christ is the, is the Spirit who gives faith, who, who worked faith into our hearts that we, became to, so that we came to believe in Christ and to trust in Christ. And behind our, our love for each other, behind our love for all the saints, is the, is the spirit of love. It caused us to be born again so that our murderous nature might be put to death. As we look more and more to the God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As Paul says in verse 7, their, their love is, is in the spirit. And behind our hope, of course, is also the, the spirit of hope. He's the one who, who came to us in our darkness and despair and caused us to, to look away from ourselves and, and to look away from all the hopeless things of the world and to look to Christ who has laid up treasures for us in heaven which shall never perish or spoil or, or fade away. And this newfound hope, we discover especially, has been the, the primary driving force behind their new way of life. The sense of verse 5 is that the Colossians' love for all the saints has, has sprung forth from the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. See, Paul recognizing, and have us to recognize by the Spirit that, that true hope, that Christian hope, is not mere wishful thinking. But true Christian hope is is grounded in the resurrection of Christ who assures us and all His people that, that those who have died with Him will also be raised with Him. Christian hope is not just a subjective feeling that we have, but it's an objective reality, grounded in objective reality of the Lord Christ Himself. And so when Paul thinks about the church in Colossae, he cannot help but Give thanks to God always in His prayers concerning them. And the sense of this, of course, is not that the Apostle Paul was praying every minute of every day, but when Paul prayed, he prayed regularly. And when he prayed for the church of Colossae, he, he never failed to give thanks to God for them. When he considers the effect that God's grace has had on their lives, how perhaps only a decade, decade before they had known nothing of Christ. But now here they are marked by faith and love and hope in Christ. Paul 
is thankful. Pause in awe of what God has done, giving them faith, hope, and love. These three things, says one pastor form, the triad that summarizes the essence of Christian existence. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these being love. For this marvelous work of God's grace in Christ, Paul cannot help but thank God always in his prayers concerning them. I wonder, people of God, how often we give thanks to God for the same things. I wonder if in the midst of our, of our prayers for each other, if in the midst of our, of our ongoing prayers for Bob and our ongoing prayers for the, our shut-ins and our expecting mothers, if, if we also never cease to give thanks to God for the work that He's doing in all our lives. I confess, I was convicted of this very thing that and I myself am not always as thankful as, as I should be. Yes, I, I pray for you. I pray daily that God would, would bless you and keep you as you go about your work and daily tasks, that God would, would keep you from sin and from temptation. I pray for the children at school. I pray for those who are sick, for those who stand in special need of His grace. I pray for those who are wandering away. But what I don't do often enough is simply thank God for you and the work that He is doing in all your lives. But that's the sense of what, of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. That perhaps what we really should do is every now and again, or make it a practice, a pattern throughout the week, is work our way through the church directory. And, and beginning with the backers and ending with Mr. Zwackstra, thank God for the work that He's doing in our lives. And give thanks to God for the work that He's doing in our children's lives and not, and not take these things for granted. To be sure, we, we need to pray for those who stand in special need of God's grace, but do we never cease to give thanks to God for the reality that so many of us are, are living in light of that grace? It's easy for us to take that for granted, isn't it? But if we just take a step back and think about it, then we'll re- recognize, again, that none of us are here this morning by chance or by happenstance. None of us came to faith by chance or by our own power. As we confess in Lord's Day 3, all of us are by nature prone to hate God and to hate our neighbor. That's our nature. That's what naturally lives in us. But here we are this morning. Sinners for sure, but also saints. Singing things like wholehearted thanksgiving to to you I will bring. And remember not, O God, the sins of long ago. And singing words of the words of Psalm 16. The saints throughout the earth and them is my delight. For excellent are they who live as holy in your sight. We do well to take a step back and ask ourselves the question, the very same question that perhaps the Apostle Paul might have asked himself so long ago with regards to the Colossians. How can all this be so? How can this be so? How can we, how can it be that that natural-born haters of God 
should be lovers of God. And the only answer, of course, is that God himself has brought it about. We who are by nature children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, God, according to the great love that he had for us, caused us to be born again. He made us alive together with Christ and seared us with Christ in heavenly places. It's really quite miraculous. And this, people of God, is why the apostle cannot stop giving thanks to God for these believers. He, he sees the fruit of their faith at work in their lives, and this moves him to maintain this constant attitude of gratitude. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul is filled with gratitude to God for the sincerity of their faith because God is the one who stands behind it. God is the one who has who's been at work in their lives and God is the one whose work is, is bearing fruit and increasing. And that's what we see in the rest of our passage. Paul writes in the second part of verse 5 of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. As I've already said, the Colossians' faith and love and hope are not original to them. But in verse 5, Paul reminds them, he reminds us that Christian hope is based upon the word of truth, the gospel. Which word and which gospel Paul wants them to see is all they need. In his condescending grace and mercy, God, God spoke to the Colossians in the gospel of his son, through the ministry of, of Epaphras, and, and God's grace reached down into their lives and and touched their lives, and had great impact on their lives. God's grace, the gospel had the power to do that. And that's what Paul would have them to see. It's the very same gospel he says in verse 6, which has not only come to them, but to give further evidence to the gospel's power he knows that it's the very same gospel which is going out into all the world and, and bearing fruit and increasing. He's saying this is a, an abounding gospel that's, that's progressive, that's going forward and, and having its effect. It's not returning to God void, but as the prophet Isaiah says, as the, as the rain shower the earth and give growth to the produce, so too the gospel is, is going forth. It's bearing fruit and increasing. Paul's saying that's the very same that's been happening in your own lives. It's the very same thing he says that's happened in your own lives since you came to understand the grace of God in truth as you heard it from Epaphras, our, faith, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. 
And so Paul is here urging them, and he's likewise urging us to stay true to this gospel, the only gospel, to, to trust that this gospel really is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Perhaps you've heard before that when Paul uses that expression in Romans chapter 1, when he describes the gospel as the, as the power of God, the, the Greek word for power is, is dunamis. It's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. Because just as you can see the, the effect that dynamite, dynamite has when it explodes, so too you can see the, the effect of the, of the gospel when it, when it goes forth. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul is underscoring for us here, the real and lasting impact that the gospel has upon people's lives. But they might see it. They don't need to look for, for another word. They don't need another saved. They don't need anything else, but Christ is sufficient and, and His word is sufficient. We'd have us recognize that no word in all the world is as powerful as, as the gospel word. It's a word that that transcends human cultures and ethnicities and languages. It's a word that, that demolishes human pride and arrogance. It's a word, says one pastor, that has the power to save all men because it addresses the need that all men have, namely to be made right with the just and holy God. And that's the effect that the gospel has, peace with God. And so Paul is here reminding the Colossians that this has been their own experience. He's saying, you yourselves, you've come to know God. You've come to understand in your own lives the grace of God. You've come to know God's grace and peace and truth. He reminds them, this is what you learned. This is what you learned from Epaphras who has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You see, by reminding the Colossians of these things, by, by reminding them and showing them God's work in their lives, Paul is, is drawing a line of contrast between, between the one true gospel and between whatever false teachings are threatening to, to undermine their trust in the gospel. Paul wants them to see, he wants us to see that the word of truth, the gospel, the, the life-changing gospel, this has been the source of their fullness. This has been the source of their satisfaction, their new sense of, of completion and fulfillment. Nothing else but only Christ. Paul would have the Colossians and us this morning to look back in our own lives and, and to see the work of God's grace in our lives. And in so doing, to, to lift up our thanksgiving to God as the only source and author of it all. To the world, we of course recognize the gospel appears to have little to no effect at all. As, Paul, as the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel is... It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. It appears weak and puny and unfruitful. It appears to be pathetic. And so the world refuses to, to take note of its power. It suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. 
but we look at our own lives and we look at our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. And we say, how can the gospel not be true? We've experienced the power. We've seen the power. We know the power of the gospel. That's why we, we grow to feel more and more guilty for our sin. That's why we find ourselves looking to Christ more and more for forgiveness of sins. That's why we, we find ourselves wanting to, to live apart from sin. That's clear evidence of the gospel's power. It's a clear evidence of the gospel's working in our lives that, that we too can look back in our lives and our former selves. And we can say with the Apostle Paul as he, as he speaks the power of Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, describes his old life and he says, by the grace of God I am what I am. I'm a new man, a new creature. And when we, we feel the guilt for our sin and we feel love for Christ and we go to Christ, that's God confirming that power. That's God confirming the veracity of his word. No, we don't, we don't base our faith upon our experience of it, but our experience of it does confirm us in it. As, as the catechism says, on the nature of our good works, we don't do good works to earn God's grace, but those good works are evidence that God's grace is at work in our lives. Maybe His work in our lives and His work in the world isn't always as big as we'd like it to be or as speedy as we'd like it to be. It's not always as apparent as, as we wish it was. Sometimes our, our growth and our progress in the gospel is slow. Sometimes it feels like, like we aren't really bearing that much fruit. But as Paul says, the Christian life is a life marked by hope, isn't it? Hope for greater things to come. Hope laid up for us in heaven. And Paul would have us to see that in light of that hope, what we have in Christ already now is more than enough. Because we'll have more fully on the last day. We have already now in principle. Already now we are raised with Christ in newness of life. Already now we are seated with Him in heavenly places. Already now, that's our spiritual location. We live in the domain of Christ. We are in Him. We live here in Ontario, but our true citizenship, our true place, domain of existence is in Christ in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so Christ is more than enough. Christ is all-sufficient. His word is all-sufficient. The word of the gospel is enough for us. And so the Spirit of Christ urges us to look only and always to Him, giving thanks to God always in our prayers when we consider the wonder of all wonders that the gospel came to us. The gospel came to this congregation granted to us hope, lasting hope, objective hope laid up in heaven. May this hope inspire us to do what it did for the Colossians. May this hope in Christ inspire us, drive us to love Christ and to love all the saints. And may this hope be so evident in our lives 
that others too might, might see the fruit of faith and the power of the gospel in our own lives, that they too might, might be desirous of that hope that is within us, that they too might come to, to this all-sufficient Savior, this Christ in whom we have all our fullness. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we thank you that in Christ we have all that we need, that he himself is our fullness, that he himself is our assurance and our hope. Father, we thank you that you have brought us into Christ, that we are so united to him that the Apostle Paul would have us to conceive of our lives and of ourselves as being lived in him. Father, I give you thanks for this congregation's faith in Christ and for this congregation's love for each other and for the hope laid up for them in heaven. Father, I pray that you would teach all of us to to take note of your work in our lives. That we would not take it for granted when we see our children growing up in the fear of the Lord. That we would not count a small or an, or an insignificant thing when, when, young people, when young people profess their faith, but that we would see that all this is the miraculous working of your grace, having come to dead and lifeless sinners to make them alive in Christ. Father, we give you thanks that the word that you've spoken to us is the true word. We live in a world where people say that they can all have their own truth. And we see the confusion, the chaos that that has created in our world and our culture. And so we give you thanks for giving us the true word, the word of the gospel a word in which we can place our trust, in which we can place our stock and lean upon all our days. Father, we thank you for Christ who saved us and who preserves us in all these things, and we pray in his name. Amen. For the song of response, let's stand to 